Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome. Another week has uh, come and gone in this uh, COVID-19 uh, era. And uh, we will have some stuff to say about it. But as we've been doing in past weeks, I think it is time to get our minds a little bit off of this. And I suggest that once again, after the uh, uh, 3.15 check on traffic, we play a little bit of the science quiz. And obviously, I select questions that I think are interesting. And not only that, that you can learn something from. The way it works is I ask you a question, you get it right, I ask you another question, and so it goes. You get it wrong, you are gone. So if you want to play the game, uh, you can get on the line right now, 514-790-0800. Also, of course, that is the number to call for any question that you may have. Whether it deals with COVID-19 or not, uh, of course, we welcome all questions that are somehow even obliquely related to, to science. Uh, this past week, uh, there was a lot of talk about what is happening in Sweden. And, uh, of course, Sweden has taken quite a different approach to dealing with the virus. In, uh, instead of shutting everything down, they're kind of trying to foster uh, herd immunity. And we've talked about this many times before. Uh, the herd immunity is the notion that if uh, some 60 or 70 percent of the population are immune to a disease, then the rest of the population is unlikely to get it because they are not so likely to meet someone who is uh, infected. Well, while it is true that uh, Sweden has not had the strict shutdown that we have had here, uh, they have advised people to uh, do the physical distancing, etc., and schools were, in fact, uh, closed. So it's, it's not exactly like they did nothing. But unfortunately, the death rate in Sweden has soared. It is, on a per capita basis, the highest in the world. Now, of course, the authorities there are saying that this is the case because... Uh, uh, sort of all the deaths have been telescoped into a relatively short time frame, and that once um, you know uh, uh, you start to see the decline in deaths, you're going to see a dramatic decline because uh, of the herd immunity. Doesn't seem to be working quite like that because, uh, according to the most recent statistics, they've only reached about 77% of the population uh, demonstrating that they have antibodies to the virus. And that, of course, is way, way short of anything that we can refer to as uh, herd immunity. So, so far, um, the issue is, is not clear whether or not Sweden has been on the right track. I think it's going to take some time before we uh, really find out. At this point, though, here in North America, I think the advice still has to be the physical distancing. That is the best protection that we have. And um, the information that um, uh, is coming out, you know, just about every day now is not adding a whole lot to what we already know. It's mostly repetitive. Uh, I think we have now accepted the fact that there is some protection that is offered by wearing of masks outdoors. Um, I don't think there is much point in wearing gloves outdoors, but the mask is a, a different story. Although I still don't think that you need to wear a mask when you're walking, uh, you know, outside in 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 the fresh air, uh, because they're automatically uh, one does keep social distancing. But uh, indoors is a different story, and um, when you have uh, situations where you have a lot of people indoors, and you don't have great ventilation, that is when this disease uh, seems to spread. Uh, 
This morning on the trivia show, I asked a question. I asked about the relationship between a chemical that was worn in a little bag around the neck of people in 1917-18 when they were experiencing the flu uh, pandemic and the relationship of that to ping pong balls. The uh, answer is camphor. Camphor is the chemical that was, uh, was used. And the relationship to ping pong balls is a bit more obtuse, but uh, I will get around to it. Uh, ping pong balls today are the only material that is still made of celluloid, and camphor played a very important role in the um, first uh, synthesis of, uh, of celluloid. In 1917-18, uh, we had the flu pandemic. Uh, no one really seems to know exactly how many people died. Estimates are anywhere from 25 to 50 million which, of course, is uh, way, way more than anything that we're experiencing now with COVID-19. That was absolutely a, a devastating uh, time, and people tried everything in order to protect themselves, including wearing of masks. And there are numerous pictures that you can find on the Internet of people in 1917 uh, uh, 18 wearing masks. Schools were shut down. Stores were shut down. So the, the uh, regulations that were introduced were very similar to what we are uh, seeing today. Camphor had a long history at that time of, of uh, uh, being a medicine, although without any kind of evidence at all. Camphor is a, a, a chemical that can be extracted from the bark of a variety of trees, and uh, generally this is done by uh, chopping up the bark and carrying out what is called steam distillation, and uh, that allows the isolation of, um, of camphor. It's a very pungent-smelling chemical. Uh, it's uh, sort of uh, smell is similar to naphthalene, although certainly not uh, the same as, uh, as naphthalene. But anyway, it has a long history of use as a uh, as a medicine without, as I said, any kind of evidence at all. It may have a slight decongesting effect because when you inhale this uh, vibrant vapor that comes off of, of camphor, you tend to notice it. And I think maybe the nasal passages uh, uh, do open up. But in terms of having any kind of antiviral effect, uh, no, there's no evidence whatsoever. And wearing of this thing around the neck in a pouch uh, was uh, totally useless. Uh, except that maybe the strong smell kept people at somewhat of a distance. And that may have been an early uh, mode of uh, physical uh, distancing. Well, to this day, uh, no one has found any uh, real medicinal effect for camphor, although it is used in things like Vicks VapoRub, along with menthol. Uh, you rub this on the body. It, it, it kind of uh, tickles the nerve endings and gives you a, a somewhat of a feeling of, of the skin being cooled. But again, it's not therapeutic for uh, for anything uh, at all. Uh, camphor is also the ingredient that you normally find in uh, this product called Tiger Balm, which you will find in many Oriental uh, stores. Uh, it was very popular um, in 1917 and 18 to kind of anoint oneself with, um, with camphor. Uh, it did nothing except maybe give a little bit of confidence to whoever was wearing it. Well, today, uh, with COVID-19, no one, of course, is suggesting the wearing of, of camphor around the neck, although there are some equally nonsensical suggestions that have been offered. And one of these uh, relates to chlorine dioxide. Uh, chlorine dioxide is a bleaching agent, and uh, certainly when it is applied to a surface, uh, it will destroy viruses, it will destroy bacteria. A very strong bleaching agent, commonly used in the uh, pulping 
industry. It is also the ingredient that is formed uh, when you combine <clears throat> uh, two bottles of a, um, a product that is sold as Miracle Mineral Solution. And uh, in uh, Miracle Mineral Solution, you pour the two chemicals together that releases chlorine dioxide, and this is said to be the cure for absolutely everything. Not only is it not a cure for everything, but it is a potentially toxic substance. And the reason I mention this is because there is this gizmo that is sold uh, on the internet, which kind of looks like a necklace, but instead of having um, uh, camphor in it, it has uh, chlorine dioxide bonded to a material called a zeolite, which is basically a type of clay, and supposedly the stuff gets released into the air around you and protects you against the virus. Uh, this is just crazy. Uh, inhaling chlorine dioxide is not a good thing. So we may have learned a few things since 1917, 1918, uh, but there are some things that are just the same, and quackery still reigns supreme when it comes to confronting diseases uh, that don't have any kind of uh, effective scientific treatment. Okay, we're going to take a, a, a look at the traffic, and after that, we'll spend a few minutes playing uh, our little scientific quiz game, get our minds off of COVID-19, be informed, and be entertained. You can get on the line at 514-790-0800, and we will be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, first let me go to Steve, who seems to have some question other than my quiz. Hi, Steve. Hi, Dr. Joe. Um, I wonder, my mother is having problems with uh, sort of uh, diarrhea, uh, constant diarrhea. She's taking uh, hydroxyurea, hydrea, um, sort of a semi-cancer, semi-chemotherapy drug. And I'm wondering about using a uh, probiotic with that. Do you do you have any information? Well, about probiotics that? don't interact negatively with anything. Okay. Uh, you know the ones that are commercially on the market. Uh, you know very often they are prescribed for things like like diarrhea. Yeah. But uh, you know, the, I mean, obviously, when you have a medical condition like the one you described, you have to be in a physician's care, and uh, you know, ask them what you should and what you should not do. Right. But I, I've never I've never heard of any kind of uh, you know negative effect from the, the commercially available uh, probiotics. Did on you... the other on the other hand, whether or not they have any significant benefit. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. And, uh, that's a different uh, question as well. Uh, for for diarrhea, I, I would say that there is some evidence that uh, that they can help if the diarrhea is caused by an imbalance of uh, gut flora. Right. Uh, but uh, you know, your case or your mother's case may be a totally different story. It may have absolutely nothing to do with the bacteria in, in, in the gut. I guess there's only one way to find out. There's one way to find <laughs> out, and uh, of course, you know, you have to make sure that your physician is on, uh, you know, no knowledgeable about this. And, right. And, Okay. Okay. Thanks All right. Thanks. Now let's get back to questions. And I got Tom on the line here. Tom? Oh, this seems all of a sudden all of our calls have vanished. Okay. We're going to try that again. I, I think we might have one back. Hi. Do we? Yes. Uh, good afternoon. Hi. I'd like to talk to Joe Schwartz, please. That's me. Oh, that's you. Hi, Dr. Schwartz. How Hi. are you? Good. So good. I like to ask you how much caffeine is in one 
square 100 gram Linden chocolate, 85 percent. Oh, the caffeine would be not not much, a few milligrams. A few I, milligrams, yeah. because I'm not allowed to eat chocolate because I have a problem with the stomach. But I like to cook oats with the one square chocolate. The amount of caffeine in there is not going to affect that, it you. It don't affect anything. No. Okay, thank you very okay. much. Have a good day. Thank okay, you. Okay, thanks. I think now we have Tom back. Tom? Hi, Dr. Joe. I must have gotten cut off from oh, right. some kind of conspiracy resulting from 5G. <laughs> exactly. Facebook coming after me. I mean, I, you know, we are, we are being monitored after all. Well, you are so being I'm monitored. Ready, I'm ready to be questioned. You're being monitored right now by me. So, all right. Oh, okay. What is it called when light changes direction by passing through a lens? Uh, it's a prism thing. It's a bending. It's, it's, yes, it's, and exactly. And there's a term for that. When when uh, light bounces back from a mirror, we call it reflection. Like refraction. Refraction. Very there good. You go. Okay. Uh, a group of these animals is called an ambush. What animal are we talking about? A group of them is called an ambush. And I can tell you, you would not want to be ambushed by these animals. Uh, genus species? No, you're, you're not too far off. It's not the cheetah. Uh, it's not the cheetah. I give you one more guess at it. It's a, I would say it's a more powerful animal than the cheetah. Uh, a hyena? No. No, it's, it's not a hyena. Okay, we're going to give someone else a shot at, uh, at that one, okay? All right. Uh, we got Patrick on the line. I'm not sure if he's for our quiz or another question. Patrick? Hi. Hi. You want to take Joe, a sh- it's, it's, not, it's not for the quiz. Okay, you want to take a shot of what I just asked? Uh, no, no, it's not, it's not for the quiz. Yeah, but uh, I, I just gave a clue to oh, the rest. Oh, no, no, no shot. No, I actually, I've been, I've been meaning to call you for a long time now. Okay, um, go ahead. Um, how come when you put bread in, in aluminum foil and put it in the fridge versus putting like saran or putting it in a plastic baggie, it stays fresher? It stays fresher in the aluminum foil? Yeah. If you wrap it properly, yeah. Well, the only thing I can think of is that the aluminum foil uh, will let some air circulate in there, whereas if you wrap it tightly in, in plastic, um, you lo- you're locking in the moisture and you don't get circulation. You're more likely to get mold. But, okay. But uh, I, I've never experienced that, putting it in aluminum foil. Is, um, yeah, my, my wife and, and her mother have, have, been, have done that for a very long time, and it always works and it keeps the, the bread fresher. Yeah. And you just wrap it tightly in aluminum foil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, if you want to have it, like, a bit, a bit soft, you stick it in the microwave, and um, away you go. Okay, well, there's an experiment for me to try. Because yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm a big bread man, probably okay. too, too big. And yeah. uh, I, I try to buy the bread uh, fresh because I've always found that... Uh, no matter what you do after a day or so, it just uh, it doesn't taste the same. I mean, to yeah. me, there's nothing like the aroma and the taste of uh, fresh bread. Uh, especially the, my fav- favorite is sourdough from uh, San Francisco. Okay. Uh, I find that great. You get some good sourdough here, but I've never found one that is quite equal to what you get in San Francisco. Okay, I'm, I'm going to try the aluminum foil uh, thing, right. and uh, I'll report back on it. 
Okay. Okay. Have a great day, Dr. All right. Joe. Okay. Uh, so let me just repeat the question. A group of these animals is called an ambush. What animal are we talking about? If you know the answer to that, 514-790-800. I'll even give you the next question that uh, I'm going to ask, uh, and that is these were originally called baby gays, baby gays. And this personal care item was invented in 1923 by Leo Gertzenzang. It's likely to be found in a bathroom. What are we talking about? What item that you find in the bathroom, invented in 1923, originally these items were called baby gays. So that's the question. The other camp question that I have out there is, what group of animals is called an ambush? What group of animals is called an ambush? You can get on the line at 514-790-0800, 514-790-0800, if you want to get in on this, because I want to give you some entertainment and divert from the COVID-19. Okay, who do we have here? Hello? Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Hi. Uh, the answer for the uh, the uh, question, the yeah, first one, yeah. the, uh, the ambush. Yes. It's uh, lions. It's not lions, but you're you're close. The, the lions actually is a pride of lions. Well, that's, that's, that, that's what they're called as a group. But you're talking about... Anyway, I, okay. No, I I'm mean, it's it, the same way that a group of lions would be called a pride. A group of these animals is called an ambush. So the question is, what you animal is an that? Ambush. Oh, ambush. They're felines? No. Okay, and the other question I had was originally these items were called baby gays, and you can find them in the bathroom. They were invented in 1923 by Leo Gertzenzang. Any idea what those are? No, no. All right. Well, we're going to leave that question hanging. We've got two questions out there, not answered. Thank you. Sorry. group of these animals called an ambush, what are they? And what item that you might find in your bathroom were originally called baby gays? All right. Get your thinking hat on so that you can call up at 514-790-0800 after we check the news, and then we'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We'll get back to my questions in just a sec, but uh, I had an interesting uh, question here texted in. Uh, how are the retail stores going to function? Are they going to disinfect clothing and shoes after customers try it on? I cannot see how they can operate like this. How is the customer to know what is clean and what is not? And I certainly cannot see people trying on shoes. Oh, shoes would be the least of my worries. Uh, as I've said many times, this virus is a respiratory virus. You have to inhale it. It has to infect the bronchial tubes, has to get in through your nose, through your eyes, through your mouth. It does not go across your skin. So you're not going to catch this from wearing any kind of clothing or from trying on shoes. What is possible is that if someone who is infected has touched the clothing and you touch the same spot where they had maybe left some remnant of their sneeze or, or cough, and then you touch your face, that's a possible uh, way to get infected. But again, that is such an unusual and unlikely scenario. So I don't think that trying on clothes or shoes is, is an issue. 
What are stores going to do? Uh, well, they will have to deal with the fear that people have. And apparently, when someone tries something on, they will then store it uh, for a few days because we know that the virus becomes inactive after a few days. Anyway, that's what they say they're going to do. To me, this is, is really not a big issue because I just don't think that that is a, is a significant way of transferring uh, the virus. Uh, it is uh, contact with people. It is inhaling someone's exhaled breath. Uh, we need to stay, uh, you know, distance from people indoors. Uh, when you go into a store, it certainly makes sense to wear a mask. I don't think it makes much sense when you're walking outside to wear a mask, as I've stated before. But I also have to, you know, preface all of my remarks, saying that that these are just guesses, uh, hopefully educated guesses because uh, I've never encountered a situation like this where so little is known as is known here. And every day something new comes up. This is just a mystery illness. You know, once we, one day we find out that it uh, uh, produces uh, microthrombi. Next day we find out that it has something to do with, uh, with a disease that is similar to Kawasaki disease. Uh, then we find out that uh, maybe vitamin D may be protective. I mean, every day we are learning something new, but we just can't have any kind of conclusive answers uh, here. Even, you know, the, the distancing, the, the two meters or the six feet, that is really just a guess. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't want to give people the impression that, you know, if you go six foot one inch, then, then uh, you're protected totally. That's just not how things work. Anyway, so let me get back to uh, my quiz here. Don. Hi, Don. Yeah, hi. I'm going to take a shot at uh, killer whales, orcas. Uh, that's not what I asked. <laughs> oh, where would that question come from? Well, I thought you were you mentioning uh, there's a group of animals that uh, considered that would be classified as um, ambush. Ambush. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, you're you're thinking killer whales? No, it's not killer whales. Okay. What about oh, the yeah. other question that I asked about baby gays? Personal uh, that care item. That's out there. Too out there for me. I, I, that's I too out there. You know, I'm I'm surprised because these things are easily so easily Googleable. <laughs> All right. Oh. There's there, okay. There's a term for you. Okay. Let me go to Julie. Hey, Julie. Hi. Um, so you don't want to be ambushed by tigers. Yes, you sure don't want to be ambushed by tigers. And that's what a group of tigers is called an ambush. And that's not a very common thing. We don't hear, you know, we hear pride of lions often, but we don't hear about ambush of, of tigers. Very good. All right. That's what true. about my next question? What are these items? Originally, they were called baby gays. Personal care items. You still. Uh, yeah. Is it for a bidet? No, no, okay. no, well, no. Much, I didn't much, it. <laughs> much, much, much smaller than that. Much smaller. Okay, let's see. Okay, if, thank let, you. Thank you. Let me see if anyone else has an answer to that. Uh, we'll go. I think we have Angelo here. Yes. Good, good afternoon, Joe. Uh, the uh, it's the little stick with a cotton at the end. Q-tips. Yes, it is the Q-tip. Very good. And uh, Q-tips were invented in 1923. That's a long time ago, almost 100 years ago, yeah, by Leo yeah. Gertzenzang. And uh, what are you not supposed to use Q-tips for? Oh, to put it in the, up your nose. No, in the ear. In the ear, exactly. And yet, what is the most popular use of Q-tips? In the ear. In the ear, exactly. For. And doctors will tell you not to do that because uh, if you're not careful, you can perforate an eardrum. Yeah. Although I'm not sure how often that happens. I don't think that happens very often. But there are all kinds of other uses. you got to go very far and push it in. No. There are all kinds of other uses for Q-tips. All right. Anyway, you have earned the right to another question. Uh, an alloy of copper and 
Tin is called what? Alloy. Tin, I think it's zinc. No, it is not. We're looking for an alloy of copper and tin. Okay, thanks very much for trying. We'll go to Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre. Could it be bronze? It is bronze, exactly. Copper and tin is bronze. What famous jewel named after an English banking family owes its color to boron? One of the most famous jewels in the world. Uh, Does that something to do with India? No. I'll give you one more clue. This famous jewel is displayed in the Smithsonian Museums in uh, Washington, D.C. The jewel itself? Or? The jewel itself. Yes, the jewel itself. And it's a, it's extremely famous, extremely valuable, and it has a bluish color, and it owes its color to the tiny impurity of boron. Hmm? The royal something? No, it's not the royal something. No, oh, I don't know. Okay. Well, I guess we will uh, have to leave that uh, that question hanging. I would have thought that that's, uh, uh, that's not a very difficult one because uh, I, I would argue that this particular piece of jewelry that we're talking about is, is uh, probably the most famous single piece of, uh, of jewelry that uh, people would have uh, heard of. Okay. Anyway. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit more about the connection between ping pong balls and and uh, the 1917-1918 epidemic. But before we get around to that, uh, the weather is getting hot. Watermelon is very, very popular. It is indeed one of the most popular fruits. And uh, you heard maybe all kinds of things about benefits of, of, uh, of this fruit, lycopene, the red pigment, which is an antioxidant uh, that's found in, in watermelon. You have various kind of uh, other carotenoids uh, in there. And uh, you know, uh, fruits and vegetables, as we know, are, are uh, very healthy. Uh, of course, we want to eat watermelon, but we want one that is ripe and has the right texture. Now, how do we determine this? Right texture means that the cells that make up the fruit must have just the right inner water pressure, or turgor, as it is called. As the fruit matures, water builds up inside the cells until they squeeze against each other, producing the desired rigidity. Once the fruit is picked, it starts to lose water and cells become partially empty and the tissue weakens. You don't want that texture. Also, as the cells enlarge, sugar synthesized in the leaves through photosynthesis are transported to the fruit. So maturity depends on water content and sugar content. How do we know when this has been achieved? The usual method is to tap that melon. Sound travels at a different rate through a sugary water solution than through air. So an experienced tester can determine if a melon will taste good. It is hard, however, to convey this information to an inexperienced consumer. All kinds of analogies have been used. A Taiwanese watermelon-grown champion says to tap with your knuckle on your forehead, chest, and stomach, and learn the sounds. A ripe melon, it is said, sounds like you're tapping on your chest. If it sounds like the forehead, then it is unripe, and if it sounds like the stomach, it is overripe. Not a very scientific technique, but apparently it works. Now students at the University of Delaware in Newark have developed a computer-controlled watermelon ripeness sensor that may replace the thumping method. This is important because it is not unusual for a 40,000-pound truckload to be rejected at the marketplace at a cost of thousands of dollars to the farmer if the melons have been shipped uh, a significant distance and they don't uh, taste right. 
With this new device, the melon rests on a foam rubber and a mallet attached to a metal arm protrudes from one side while a microphone sits close to the melon on the other. When the mallet strikes, the sound is transferred to a laptop that digitizes sound and the signal shows up on the screen. It correlates to sugar content, which is ideally about 8 to 12%. A prototype gives a ripeness reading in 12 seconds. It weighs about 18 pounds and costs $1,100. Of course, if you have a willing grocer, you can always cut a wedge out of a watermelon and taste it. That's a lot cheaper than $1,100 and probably more accurate. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I had a texted comment that I threw people off when I said that uh, I wasn't looking for a feline. Well, uh, tigers, of course, are felines. What, what I said, that feline was not the answer to the question. The answer to the question was tigers, not felines. But tigers indeed are our felines. That that much is, uh, is certainly correct. You know that every Thursday with my colleagues at the McGill Office for Science and Society, we do an online program. We stream it and uh, we talk about all kinds of things. We call it conversations about COVID-19 plus more. And uh, you can always ask your questions live, but the program is recorded. And if you want to see previous episodes, and by now we have a number of previous episodes with various interesting guests. Uh, last week we had Dr. David Gorski, who's a, a, a cancer surgeon, but he also blogs prolifically about all kinds of issues, including COVID-19. And you can just go to our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS mcgill.ca slash OSS, and you can see all of the previous uh, uh, broadcasts, and uh, I think you find them interesting. Let me get back to what I started uh, to talk about today, about uh, uh, linking uh, ping pong balls to 1917-1918 influenza uh, pandemic, and the connection was uh, camphor, which was this uh, chemical that people were hanging around their neck back in those days to try to protect themselves against the disease. Okay, well, let me now give you the ping pong ball uh, connection. And the story starts with uh, Swiss chemist Christian Schoenbein's clumsiness. This takes us back to 1845, and he was distilling a mixture of nitric and sulfuric acid in his kitchen when the flask broke and the contents spilled all over the floor. Quickly grabbing his wife's cotton apron hanging nearby, he proceeded to wipe up the mess. After washing the apron, he hung it in front of a hot stove to dry, and he was stunned when it just vanished in a flash. Actually, some seven years earlier, Théophile Jules Pelouse had reacted cellulose to make of cotton with nitric acid to produce a flammable material, but never capitalized on his observation. Schoenbein, however, did. He recognized that his discovery could have a practical application as a propellant in firearms, especially given that it produced no smoke. Battlefields at the time were commonly filled with smoke, obscuring targets. Schoenbein's gun cotton, as it came to be called, was far more flammable than Palooza's nitrocellulose because sulfuric acid catalyzed the reaction of cellulose with nitric acid and resulted in a higher degree of, of nitration. <clears throat> cellulose is composed of glucose units linked together, with each glucose having three sites where nitro groups can attach, forming highly unstable oxygen-nitrogen bonds. 
It is the breaking of these bonds, coupled with the release of oxygen by the nitro groups that leads to rapid combustion. Palouse's method, two nitro groups per glucose on average, while Schoenbein's reaction resulted in cellulose trinitrate, the basis of modern smokeless gunpowder, three times more powerful than classic black powder that was made with sulfur, charcoal, and saltpeter. Not only did smokeless gunpowder change the course of warfare, it altered the plastics industry. At the same time that the disappearing apron startled Schoenbein, one of Palouse's students, Louis Menard, discovered that dissolving nitrocellulose in a mixture of alcohol and ether led to a gelatinous liquid that dried to a hard, transparent film. Named collodion, it eventually found a use as a dressing for minor wounds. Applied as a liquid, it dried to provide a waterproof protective layer. Menard, it seems, did not have the imagination to mold substances out of collodion, but Alexander Parks in England did. Likely independently, he recognized the possibilities afforded by dissolving nitrocellulose in a solvent. In 1862, at the International Exhibit in London, Parks displayed a number of Parkesine items made by dissolving nitrocellulose in methanol, known at the time as wood naphtha. Allowing the solvent to evaporate left behind the material able to be molded into various shapes when heated and subjected to pressure. In other words, Parks had formulated a plastic. His co-worker, Daniel Spill, improved Parkesine by substituting castor oil for methanol and mixing in camphor to produce xylonite. However, it was American inventor John Wesley Hyatt who perfected the nitrocellulose camphor mixture and introduced celluloid, the first commercially successful plastic, triggering a legal battle with Spill about patent rights. Hyatt had been motivated by a $10,000 prize offered by the Phelan and Colander Company to anyone who could come up with a substitute for ivory in billiard balls. Celluloid was not quite up to that task, but it found widespread use in combs, brushes, toys, dentures, jewelry, gentlemen's detachable collars, and later, basis of photographic and movie film. There was, however, one problem that plagued celluloid. It was highly flammable. That was dramatically brought home to the public when the celluloid manufacturing company's four-story building in New York was leveled in just two hours by fire, fueling fear about consumer items made of celluloid. Scientific American fanned the flames with a story about a young lady whose celluloid buttons burst into flame when she parked herself in front of a fire. While that account is questionable, a story in the December 18, 1910 issue of the Pittsburgh Gazette Times was factual. It recounted the story of a gentleman who lost his life while caring for his long gray beard with a comb. The unfortunate man had the habit of combing his beard beard and holding the comb over a small gas stove to burn away the hairs that had become stuck in a comb's teeth. This time, he seems to have held the comb just a bit too long in the flame, and the comb caught fire, setting his clothing ablaze, causing lethal burns. Celluloid combs were responsible for other disasters as well. In 1909 in Brooklyn, nine workers in a comb factory were killed and scores injured when the celluloid being used to make combs ignited. Employees stampeded to the fire escapes and the roof, but unfortunately, some had to leap from windows to escape suffocating smoke.
There were also a number of devastating fires in movie theaters, and that was caused by celluloid film being ignited by the hot projector lamp. Celluloid film was eventually replaced by cellulose acetate safety film, but we were reminded of celluloid's flammability in 2012's Oscar-winning film The Artist, in which the hero, shaken by the invention of talkies, sets fire to a spool of celluloid film, almost causing his demise. Luckily, he is saved when his loyal dog draws the attention of a police officer who saves him from the burning house. That's why I'm careful to keep my celluloid objects, and I collect some of these because I, I think they are historically interesting and important. Uh, I have a couple of nice little celluloid figurine horses. I have a little celluloid doll that dates back to the late 1800s, but I'm very careful to keep these away from any uh, source of, uh, of heat. And finally, to the ping pong ball. Today, because celluloid has essentially been replaced by numerous other plastics, which are not flammable, uh, it doesn't have any use, except for one and that is to make ping pong balls. Interestingly enough, no plastic has been an adequate replacement for celluloid in ping pong balls. It gives it just the right consistency, just the right bounce. So when you play ping pong these days, just think back to the invention of celluloid, the first plastic ever. And the ping pong ball is takes us back to that age when you combined nitrocellulose with camphor in order to make a new plastic celluloid and the ping pong ball today is still made with that and indeed if you ever burn a ping pong ball you can smell the odor of camphor the same odor that was sniffed by people in 1917-18 who hung a little bag of camphor around their neck in a futile attempt to protect themselves from influenza epidemic. That's it for today. Uh, remember to check out our website, mcgill.ca slash OSS. You can sign up there for a weekly newsletter. And next Thursday, you can join us live uh, for our uh, next broadcast of uh, conversations about COVID-19. And all you have to do is check my Facebook page, and I'll let, let you know exactly when that is going to happen. That's it for now. You've been listening to The Dr. Joe Show. And until we meet again, same time, same station next week, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <music>